You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera and everything in between, if you have a piece of hunting gear or a piece of hunting equipment that needs a battery, Interstate Batteries has got you covered. You can go to a local retail store. Or you can go visit online at interstatebatteries.com. They have thousands of local retail shops all over the U.S., so you can go there as well. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Hey guys, welcome to Land and Legacy Podcast. This is your host, Adam Keith. We're co-owners of a consulting company called, go figure, Land and Legacy. This is your number one podcast resource for all things land. Each week, we're breaking down topics from land management, habitat management, conservation, farming practices, and real estate. We hope you guys enjoy it. All right, guys. Welcome to another Land and Legacy podcast. This is your host, Matt Dye. We have got such an exciting um, podcast for you guys today. You hear us talk all the time, Adam and I, about all these different habitat management practices and what you could be doing, should be doing, and what's it going to do, and all these impacts and how it's affecting the Prairie Hollow property and things we're seeing on clients' land. But what we haven't done a good job of uh, is going back to these clients and saying, hey, here's what we recommended, but what are you seeing now? Now that you've implemented this plan, what is it that you're seeing? How has your mindset changed over the course of time based on the response of your property and these these recommendations that we've made? So today we're specifically talking about the impact of old field management on a property in southeast Ohio and the impact that it's made not only for um, time, not only for the landowner's wallet, not only for the wildlife, but just the land itself in general. And um, it's going to be super exciting. So we take a little bit of a back seat and, you know, pose questions to a client. Um, The basic guys will hopefully be a sounding board and further encouragement for you guys to listen and see what it's like to go through these changes. Maybe you're apprehensive. Uh, maybe you're a little uh, nervous of the impact that this is going to be making. You know, we talk about the podcast all the time, and it's just it's just words. You guys are just hearing it. And yeah, it might it might make sense, but you know, you're not seeing it day in and day out and living it. Uh, but these guys are specifically this landowner who has seen just an amazing change on the property. So you're going to be able to hear from him today about the changes that occurred on the property. Um, This is something we're going to be doing a little bit more of is going back and and addressing some really cool farms that we've been on um, 
and some some neat things, maybe it's challenges of a property. Um, and now that you know we've seen multiple years of transition occur on a property, we have the stories to be able to tell. Um, again, not necessarily from our perspective, but from the landowner's perspective of the value and impact that it brought to their property. So hopefully you guys will enjoy this. Um, appreciate you guys so much for listening and follow along every single week. Um, it, it's a true joy, guys, to be able to do this podcast and then listen to the feedback that comes back every single week, whether it's through email, through social media, um, commenting on videos and things like that. You know, we just re- really appreciate it. So we're glad that's making an impact, a positive one, not only for you guys, but for the land as well as we all love the land. So without further ado, though, let's go ahead and, and uh, get into the podcast with Mr. Todd Watts. All righty. Well, I think we're about ready to jump into this podcast. Todd, are you there? I am here. Awesome. Awesome. Appreciate you coming along today uh, for another podcast here with us. This is, I don't know, this might be the third or fourth podcast that we've done, maybe even fifth together. Um, but you're, you're, you're becoming a household name on the Land Legacy podcast. I'm like the household guest. <laughs> yeah. The, you uh, are going to char- start old charging faithful. me rent. That's right. That's right. Um, well, he, here's here's one of the reasons why I kind of keep coming back to um, you as a guest is is because we've seen we stay in contact a, a lot, but but through through that communication, uh, I've just personally seen a big like if you will paradigm shift or or almost a, a little bit of a one eighty kind of a, of the way you just see your farm, and I think that is so important for other people to hear. And because Adam and I talk about in the podcast, you know, week in, week out, all these different habitat management practices that uh, we believe in, we preach, we recommend, uh, we talk about how beneficial they are to all sorts of game species, this and that. But what we haven't done or done a great job at is coming back to the people who we've recommended these practices and saying, hey, what are your thoughts now that now that we've been to your property, now that we've you know consulted, wrote, written a plan for you, now that you've implemented this strategy or this technique, what is it that you're seeing? And again, through the communication, I know what you've seen and I know what it looks like, but I want everyone else to see and hear truthfully this this thought and this mind shift change. Um, from a different mouth, basically, because sometimes, you know, you hear the same thing from the same people like, yeah, 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 I get it, I get it. But if it comes from a different perspective, sometimes it just kind of clicks at that point. Gotcha. I agree. So I, I think there's a lot there's a lot to be said um, about, again, the work that you've done, um, the dedication you put into the property and specifically today, what we're going to be covering and discussing is old field management. Um, I, old fields, I feel like oftentimes are obviously very overlooked um, from the standpoint of aesthetics. You know, they just like, they look scrubby, they look uh, weedy, and that tends to, if you will, on a on a scale of 1 to 10, drop it way down right out, right out of the get-go because of what it looks like. But um, practically, if you're looking to manage your property for wildlife, it's incredibly good. So, Todd, talk us 
through a little bit about your transition uh, of taking ownership of the farm, um, what the farm was, and how many acres that we are looking at from an old field currently in place on your property. Sure, sure. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, my farm uh, is in southeastern Ohio, a town called Galpolis. For those listeners who are new to the podcast or didn't hear our other 73 episodes we did together. <laughs> but, but um, and it's a mixture of, of, it's probably, well, we've got about 140 acres of what we call tillable ground. We've got a, another two or 300 acres of, of woods, and then we have the rest in various forms of early successional habitat. Probably, I probably overstated the woods a little bit, but uh, just various old cattle pastures and things like this that are on slopes or gentle hills that aren't necessarily tillable per se uh, and so forth. And when I bought the farm, it was basically the 149 acres of tillable ground was literally all fescue. The mm -hmm. whole entire 149 acres was fescue because the previous owner uh, raised some some cattle, but he wasn't like a big cattle producer but he sold and cut a lot of hay. Okay. So it was yep. basically a hay operation. It right. wasn't soybeans, corn, whatever. It was all hay. So literally fescue everywhere. And then on the hillsides, uh, that's where they basically grazed the cattle. And so the hillsides were just a mixture of, of fescue and quite frankly, uh, too many autumn olives and, and honey locusts and, and <laughs> right. so forth. But, but not a lot of wildlife value, a little more on the hills than, than in the fields, of course. But basically, my farm was about, in my opinion, about 200 and some acres of basically biological desert. Mm -hmm. Had no value at all other than it looked beautiful. Sure. From, from, a, from a pasture, cattle standpoint, hay production, it was probably a, a really productive farm. Um, from a hay perspective, yes. Sure. Now, if you consider a fescue hay good, and, I, and that's a whole other discussion, <laughs> Yes, <laughs> uh, it could have, with warm season grasses and other things, it would have been a way better cattle producing farm, if you ask me. But that's a totally different discussion for yeah, another day. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. so when when you bought the place, that's what you were mm -hmm. dealing with right out of the gate yes. and saying, yes. okay, I've my goals here are much different from the previous owner. So going into that, um, one, one of the things that you did right out of the gate was in those acres that were being produced just for hay, getting cut for hay, uh, you turned those and converted that into tillable ground and Correct. are planting or, or renting it out to a local farmer Correct. where they're planting um, your corn, soybean rotation. Correct? That's right. And, 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 and I, I, did, I did the thing that I would say 95% of people do when they get a farm is I thought, man, I need to start planting food plots. Let's plant right. some food plots. Because in reality, if you think about it, number one, they're sexy. Mm -hmm. Number two, uh, that's if, if you really look in either social media, the television, uh, websites, basically everything promotes food plots. And that's where, nine, in my opinion, 90 to 95% of the content is. So Correct. if that's what you're reading, that's what you're hearing, that's what you're seeing, then naturally that's what you need to do. And and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but if I could have done one thing differently, and we can get into a little bit of this more in a few moments, if I could have done one thing differently, I would have spent the entire first year or two 
working on cover and old field management and not food plots. But but that's right. Right. I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. But so what I did, as most people do, is food, 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 food. I felt the key to having big deer is just have a bunch of food. Just feed them, right? And just feed them, right? Just feed them, and they'll just sit right there and stay right there and <laughs> kill them, and they'll 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 never go away because you have all the food. Well, that's clearly not the case. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, in fact, at one point, I think I had way too much food on my farm. I mean, really, sure. and that's that's not the truth. That's not a joke. There, mm -hmm. there was too much food. So, so what we did was is is I I and I won't mention names, but but. I, I had had someone, uh, another consultant, tell me at one time, just plant all these open fields in switchgrass, mm -hmm. which I guess it would have offered cover. And I considered that. I considered planting. So my original plan was is to have a local farmer come in and, and use his work to kill all my fescue. So he would come in and plant for a couple of years, corn and soybeans. That would not only feed my deer, but it would get rid of my fescue. Mm -hmm. And then I would plant it all in switchgrass, which would have provided a lot of cover, uh, but that clearly would not have been the right thing to do. Right. So my initial thought was plant a bunch of food, create a bunch of food plots. I spent a lot of time, a lot of effort, and quite, quite frankly, a lot of money mm -hmm. putting in about 40 to 50 acres of food plots that I planted myself. Right. And paid for and did all the work. And then the farmer planted the other hundred and some acres in soybeans and corn. So that was the initial plan. So so With right no there. No thought to anything else. Right, right. Right there it was a mindset of if I want to improve the, the wildlife on the farm, I just need to focus on food. You went from Correct. basically pastures and hayfield and unmanaged timber to crops and 40 to 50 acres of food plots and unmanaged yes. timber. And, and, and some of that still was, was, let's say, unmanaged pasture land, too. Not, not all the slopes, obviously, um, had, had really been addressed at that point, Correct. and they were just growing up. Um, so yes. someone would have looked at that, maybe an untrained eye, and said, oh, that's old field, but that truthfully wasn't an old field. That was just an older, unmanaged pasture and i think right. that there's a very big difference there and we'll talk about that here in a little bit um sure you know terminology we don't want to get hung up on terminology but we want to look at the productiveness of those two systems old right. pastures versus old fields um yeah, and those old pastures were definitely old pastures but they were not old field early successional they were exactly. probably 80 percent fescue right right and then and then invasives there were there were a lot of invasives right uh, a lot of japanese honeysuckle a lot of autumn olive tons of honey locusts mm -hmm. uh, so if you really look at it then from a productivity standpoint yeah you, occasionally you'd see a deer bedded in it and things like that but other than that it offered no very little wildlife value, if anything. Right, so, right. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's that shift from, okay, hay, pasture, to 200 acres of food. And just yeah, kind of right, right out of the gate. That was the focus. That was what was, what was going to get you right. to the next level. Um, and without a doubt, of course, you know, adding that much food definitely does increase the attractiveness of the property um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and feeds more deer, without a doubt. But at the same time, that was a 
a reaction to um, what you had been seeing and interpreting um, and understanding right. as the, the proper next steps to improving the right. property um, and not addressing other key factors into the farm. And, and right. those next moves cost you a lot of money to be able to oh, a lot improve. Of yeah. yeah, in fact, I was probably feeding every deer in the county. Right, and, right. <laughs> and then, and we could even talk about this further down the, the podcast or whenever, but when those crops got, when those crops got harvested mm-hmm. in October, I had 150 acres of wasteland, right. literally beautifully cut fields that were pretty to look at, but you never saw a deer in them, literally ever. Right. And so my property, which was 560 acres, all of a sudden was just immediately whacked off to roughly 300 and some acres. Yeah, yeah. And and then of that 300 and some acres, the only there was you know, 40 acres of food plots which you would find deer in, but the timber was unmanaged and largely open woods. And so I, a lot of my deer left. Mm-hmm. My deer were leaving the property. Now yeah. they'd come and eat. Right. And then they would leave. They wouldn't. There Night was just time not, activity. no safety. Yeah. No safety for them. It, and was, through that process yeah. too, be, because of that, you also lost quite a few deer I did. to neighbors. Yeah. I did, I, I did, and and deer that were that I was that I had camera shots of that were literally bedding behind my house in mm-hmm. a in a in an area, and and deer that literally I got all summer long, all fall long, uh, two or three of the biggest deer around got shot by neighbors, and they were proudly putting them on Facebook and whatever. And I'm like, that deer, gee whiz, it lived behind my house. Right. <laughs> so, right. And, and, yeah, and was, you know, not to say that, okay, yeah, neighbors, you know, shouldn't take advantage of deer sure, on their property. This, sure. that, that happens, but it sure. was kind of a light bulb to say, Hey, listen, what's, what's happening right now on the farm is I've got all this attraction, all this food during the growing season. And then mm-hmm. I'd, I lose shave off a large portion of productiveness yes. in within my own property and yes. and because of that I'm then losing deer to neighbors that you're growing and feeding right. and you know you would like an opportunity to harvest those deer so it was happening too much right too right much. right <laughs> yeah. and so in, the three, in 2017 when the when the three biggest deer on the property got killed by neighbors it it just opened my eyes yeah yeah and and so what was what was the the thought process then of saying okay here here are my first moves but this is what i'm still noticing what what then kind of was your process of um you know next steps that you might have to take well one of the things and and that's about when you you arrived on the scene so mm-hmm. you know part of that had to do with with you and adam totally helping me transition my mindset but also as you know and the listeners probably don't know i'm a sponge for information right and so i started researching and researching and reading and researching and youtubing and everything on other things sure you know cover i started cover started becoming a a big deal to me because i i i thought to myself i can feed a lot of deer mm-hmm. but i've got to give them a safe environment i and and you know, I'm not going to go out and shoot coyotes because I, I'm, uh, that's not the answer. Or I'm not going to take get rid of predators, and I can't shoot my neighbors. So, <laughs> so I've got to do something to to 
give these deer and these this wildlife something to feel safe in uh-huh. an environment to feel safe in and so from my initial standpoint before i really studied it and you all got involved and so forth i just saw it as a safety issue right and that's why even like switchgrass or whatever kind of came into my head about i just have to i have to find a way to give these deer safety during hunting season mm-hmm. not even thinking about the sustainability of an entire deer herd on just old field habitat which is where i am today and we can we'll get to that but so i started researching how to keep my deer safe yeah and and, and keep them on my property and and that was the big transition for me from a standpoint of of i at first it was just how to keep them on the property yes yep and also i did notice that because i had so much food on the property even during the hunting season after the f- crops were far harvested I had 40 acres of food plots scattered around the property and deer were everywhere. Right. I I wasn't concentrating them and I wasn't hunting them properly properly. And so at this point I've, my food plots are probably 60% of what they were when I first started. I keep getting less and less and less and less each year Right. uh, for two reasons. One is because I have all this old field habitat, which we'll get to. But number two is I, when you look out there and it's February and literally half your food plots are still, they look like they haven't even been touched. Mm -hmm. Why are you planting all this food and wasting all this money? So I haven't even come to that balance yet of getting my food plots heavily browsed. Sure. And I've cut them down tremendously. And so I still, and quite frankly, I don't think they will ever get there because I believe now two years later, that you can sustain an entire deer herd on old field habitat, and we'll get to that. And, you know, that's a totally that's down the podcast, down down right, the, right. that further in the podcast. So. so overall, that was the the precluding to okay, that that's what got us here to the fact of, I guess let's say late legacy, uh, if you will, arriving and yes. and mm-hmm. a transition of the focus of the farm shifting from a food aspect. Um, into a cover security, um, how to yes. hunt the property, how to address what's lacking on the property efficiently. Uh, that's going to give yeah. you long-term sustainability and do it in a way that's going to um, be, let's say, respective to the wallet as well as yes. respective to your time and what it takes to manage that resource. We, we want to make the biggest impact positively on the property, but again, we want to respect the wallet and we want to respect time because those often are the limiting factors to managing a property, time and money. And so, Absolutely. And food plots are the most expensive and take the most time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, no doubt. You know what was a big, it was, what was a big eye-opener for me, and, and I didn't really notice it at the time. But I remember the first time you were at my property. Uh huh. I was so proud. I was so proud that I was going to show you my property and you were going to look at my food plots and think I was this great deer manager and whatever. And the only picture that you took that you even posted was an old field, my, one of my very few old fields. <laughs> and that was the part you loved the most. Oh, that's and funny. I'm sitting there th- and do you remember that? Yeah. It, oh, yeah. It was, oh, yeah. It was like, wait a second. I got this beautiful farm, my food plots, and you have to, I got really good food plots. Oh, yeah. And 
and he doesn't even care. He likes this <laughs> this old field right here. And at the time, I thought old field was just an old field. Sure. And he posted and you posted this picture, and there was a lot of controversy around that picture, which is a totally yes. another story. <laughs> post this picture, and it's this old scrubby field with shrubs and and ragweed and goldenrod and and a little bit of indian grass and even a couple cedars how dare us yeah (laughs) and i'm like well why would he post that that's so funny (laughs) and that was a precursor for things to come yeah which leads us perfectly right into um this podcast of okay that's the precursor to the farm and 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 where where we were now let's look at okay the bottoms, the hay, the hay production, okay, turned into crops, and now mm-hmm. a lot of that is decreasing. You know, year by year, that farmer is farming less and less of the less and less of the tillable acres. But we still have the slopes that were pasture, or or mm-hmm. over time converting into old pastures, not old mm-hmm. field management. And I want to break that down the difference there between the two of those, um, and what mm-hmm. that looks like. Because again, I don't. Everyone, you know, across the country gets, um, you know, different terminology and they say things differently or they term it differently. That's fine. But there is a distinct difference between old overgrown pastures and old field. So what we were experiencing on your farm was old pastures that had not been managed and just left alone and so yes. you were not having any disturbances across that landscape so you were experiencing you no know, cattle weren't grazing these anymore you were experiencing mm-hmm. some annual weeds um, beginning to grow up among the pasture but the base of the the uh, acres were still dominated by fescue 80 yes. plus percent of those acres were fescue and we know the fescue is a sod forming grass um, we know that it gets a at its peak, probably three and a half foot tall, maybe, and it's spindly at that height. The base is down closer to the ground, so it's thick, um, yes. not forming, not beneficial for wildlife. Deer don't consume it, um, and it's not tall enough or thick enough, truthfully, for them to be able to bed in and feel secure. So we have lots of acres that is older, thick fescue with some natives popping. We would see things like uh, wing stem goldenrod, blackberry, and then, of course, the invasives like multiflora rose, autumn olive, tree of heaven. Um, it's probably a, the honey majority. Locust. Honey locust. Um, Japanese honey. And there we go. Those That's the, the other one. That was the other one. Big one. Um, and some, we were having some um, younger oaks popping up through um mm-hmm the old fields as well. So some, some of like the scrubby ish type Oak, um, you know, four to eight foot tall. So those were just old pastures. Again, the base, the foundation of that, those acres were non beneficial to wildlife. There were some things in there like, okay, that's a snapshot of what the seed bank is though. And, And that was, you know, the process of leading into what happens if we remove that foundation of the old pasture what is it we're going to get back, and how is that going to affect the property in a positive manner? Which leads us into old field management. Old field management, by definition, is the expression of a native seed bank and letting succession take place and occur um, 
And that's right now what your fields are. They've been converted from old pastures right. into old fields. So I hope everyone can kind of see the two differences. Is one is a just a left alone unmanaged, while the other one is managed, but managed for early successional native plants that are producing both forage and cover for various forms of wildlife. Um, and you look at the time and expense to be able to manage those, and it's crazy in comparison to a food plot. But it addressed a massive, massive a limited factor on, on your property, which, again, was cover. So walk us through, Todd. And, and there are different steps and different herbicides and different ways to be able to manage and, and let's say, transform um, the old pastures into old fields. We typically are recommending folks to go in either late October, early November, um, if they don't mind going into these areas across their farm before that fescue senesces, apply a herbicide, let it soak it into the root system, it'll kill it, um, and hopefully not green back up. And if it does, the next spring, you're just going in and touching up. Um, But if you don't want to be in your property disturbing during those times, you go in and you apply herbicide when it begins to regrow during the early spring, um, across much of the area, it would be your mid-March to early April. Um, and you're applying herbicide then, killing fescue out, and running prescribed fire through that unit to be able to expose the seed bank. But what did you do in your practice on your farm? Again, it was a slightly sure. different, but it sure. achieved the same goal. Go ahead. Sure. And, and you, you touched a nerve with me. You know you did. And you probably know you did when you said if you don't want to be on your property during that time of year. That's a whole other podcast. Yes, it is. But, you know, I have some very strong feelings about pressure on property. Consistent pressure. Yep. Consistent pressure is a good thing, not a bad thing. But right. That, we need to do a to- podcast on that. But anyway, yes. I yes. digress. <laughs> Let me even go back just a little further on these old fields. Let me tell you how, how – where I was before you guys came around and before I really got to understand this, I had actually gone out and priced how much it would cost me to plant trees on all of those slopes. And I had actually gone out and almost, I, I came within probably two weeks of purchasing thousands and thousands of trees oh boy. to plant on all of those slopes. It was going to cost me forty to fifty thousand dollars to get those slopes planted in trees. And that was my solution. Is, wow. is I was going to plant them all in trees and thinking, gee whiz, in 15, 20 years I'll have me some good woods and not not acorn producers that early, but I would have a lot of cover and a place for these deer to feel safe mm-hmm. on my property. That was my plan. Wow. And boy, <laughs> what a mistake that would have been. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so let's fast forward to, to, to what was the process. My, my, my process uh, worked like this. I didn't do any burning or spraying in the fall. There's really two reasons. One is in, at least in this part of the country, the fall is very dry, and we literally have a lot of burn bans in the fall to where we literally can't burn mm-hmm. at any point in time because we have a forest fire problem around here, at least in this part of the country. And certain parts of the country are like that, certain parts are. So so burning in the fall is, is 
very difficult to do. You can do it, but, but you just have to, it's very dependent on conditions, all right? Second of all, the thing about my old fields were is that they were grown up enough to where I couldn't see the ground underneath. Therefore, I couldn't spray mm-hmm. because it was too dangerous. Yes. It was very, very dangerous. There, there we're was we're talking pretty yeah, steep, aggressive slopes here. Yeah, they're, they're aggressive enough to where if you didn't see a rut coming, you could literally flip a tractor very easily. Mm-hmm. But they weren't so steep that if, you, if, if they were smooth, you could drive a tractor on them. So it's sure. not like you couldn't get equipment on them. It was just too dangerous to do it without first seeing the ground. Sure. So I knew I had to get the ground covered. I need to get everything to where I could see bare ground to see what I, what I could and couldn't do if, if I didn't want to kill myself, basically, yeah, or ruin yeah. equipment. So what I did was, is in the, um, and I've done this now, this is my second to third year of doing this, is I did uh, March burns, March and early April burns, and I, I burned my fields. And that's a, that's a whole other topic. But, but I can tell you this, that I did not know how to do a burn at all three years ago, never been a part of one or what have you. And the thing that I've learned is, yes, you have to respect fire. You have to take, take very good care to do it right, but it's not near as intimidating as people think. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of the things that you know that a lot of the listeners don't know is I burned 60 acres in four different burns this fall excuse me, this past spring, all by myself, mm-hmm. by myself. I didn't have any help. And you think, well, how do you burn with, and, and, but that's a whole other topic. But my point is, if I, if I would suggest anything to the listeners and anyone out there, that is learn how to burn. Yep. Before you learn how to do food plots, before you learn how to do anything, learn how to burn. And as long as you make really good fire breaks, which literally is a disc or a tiller, or sometimes it's an old road, sometimes it's just a leaf blower, mm-hmm. make really, really good fire breaks, know your wind, know your conditions, and you can very, very safely burn. And start small. You know, don't burn 50 acres at once, maybe burn one or two acres. And that's what I did is, is I had one person helped me with the first burn who had done it many many times and then from that point on i basically did it all myself and i started out doing smaller ones one or two acres to keep it safe until i kind of learned the way it worked and so so what i did back to what i did is 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 we started out with one 15 or 20 acre one of these old side hill pastures and the first thing i did was burn it good fire breaks good wind and we burned it then this is the key. If you just burn an old fescue pasture, you're going to you're going to have just a new fescue pasture is what you're going to have. Correct. Now, you're yeah, you're going to probably knock back some of the invasives, some of the non fire adapted species. You're going to knock those back and that's going to help. But you're going to have the darndest, greatest fescue field after that you ever saw. <laughs> yeah. And it's I, I want to come back. I want to say, you know, this is this timing of a, of a burn. Um, let me say two things, I guess, real quick. Not sure. advocating to to, bur- to be burning alone by yourself, but if you have friends, invite them out. <laughs> I'll say that. Yeah, I'm not advocating that. You're either. right, I'm right. You can get comfortable with it. Yeah. If I came across I know what you're way, saying. I didn't mean to. No, no. What I meant was is if you do, if you follow all the safety rules, and maybe that itself is not a safety rule, but 
But if you have really good fire breaks and you're really with conditions, fire does not have to be intimidating. Correct. Exactly. It, exactly. You know, and That's I worked with point. my local law enforcement and they were all, you know, I did all, oh, followed yeah. all the rules and so forth. Totally. But, but anyway. But th- um, this, this fire though is, it's consuming the dead thatch. Cause remember this is yes. old pasture. So yes. it hasn't been grazed. It hasn't been mowed. So at this time of the year, a lot of the fescue has not begun to germinate and it Correct. is very dead. It is dried out. Um, so yes. it will burn if the humidity is low yes. and you have sunshine. That stuff will burn and carry a fire very, very well. Yes, absolutely. And and so that's the first thing uh, was burn was burn it. Well, that that did two things. One is that helped get rid of some of the woody invasives, at least to a point. Mm-hmm. That did well. Actually, did three things. Number two is as as many of you all know, and you know for sure, that many of the native forbs do very well with with fire, and Certainly. it scarifies the seed, and it actually it helps to germinate to those bring seeds. back the seed bank. Yeah, and then plus when you get rid of that thatch, that alone, if you did nothing else, even though the fescue is going to grow back, by getting rid of that thatch, it does at least give the natives some fighting chance to fight against the fescue. And, and gives them a chance to grow because if not, they're shaded out by that mat. So that those are the three or four things that burning did. And the last thing it did, it allowed me to see with the ground so that I could safely apply herbicide, which is the second step for me. Uh, and again, I headed that safely because I didn't know what was on the ground. There were lots of ruts, lots of old cattle ruts. A lot of, a lot of groundhog holes that had kind of caved yeah. in along the slopes yeah. too. And, and, and I, exactly. I, I've never hit one with a tractor, but uh, I've heard the horror story. So you took yeah. both safety precautions and modified a a technique, if you will, or a yes. method. But but here's the thing. You accomplished the same goal um, just in, in, a, in different steps. And so and yeah. I, I think that's – I don't want to take away from this podcast, but just real quickly, there's so much stuff out there about, you know, the differences in techniques and which technique, you know, it's almost like there's a lot of people talking about absolutes and the way to do things and the way to accomplish things. And I, that is not at all or should be the case. There's a totally, there's different ways to skin a cat and different ways to look oh, at, um, you know, adopting or, or um, adapting techniques to your area, to your exact situation. And sometimes you have to be flexible in that. So I think, right. In, in in total, we shouldn't get caught up in the, in the method or the technique that's that's being used. It's the overall um, right goal of the area and the way you're choosing to manage the land. So you know, right. I, and I and in fact, make sure before we get off this podcast, we need to talk about the old field where it was very easy with with no fire. For yep. those who there's, you can also do this with no fire. Right. And and which we've done areas of that as well, but. And here's the thing. You just made a great point. Don't get wrapped up in necessarily the method because even my method changes. Mm -hmm. Let me give you an example. And it should. Yeah. The first burn we did was very late. When we burned uh, almost two years ago, it was very late. It was actually in April because the conditions were just too wet. Mm -hmm. In fact, it was very difficult to even get it to burn properly because things were greening up. crazy. Well, and it was greening up. Yeah. The fescue was starting to green up. So – so once I burned it, then two or three weeks later, the fescue and things started growing back. Now think about this. It, it was now April. 
Now, if this would have been in March where the only thing growing back was fescue, I could have sprayed glyphosate on it mm -hmm. because the forbs aren't germinating yet. Right. Again, we're back to this different techniques because it, once you burn, you're still going to have to apply herbicide. If yep. you want to get rid of that fescue, you're going to have to kill it. Yep. So if it was in March, I could have sprayed glyphosate because the cool season grass being the fescue was germinating, but the forbs weren't. But that's not the case here mm -hmm. because it was now mid-April. I had this fescue growing back, but I also had forbs starting to grow that I didn't want to kill. So I used clethodim. Yep. Which is which a grass-specific grass yep. herbicide. It kills grass, but it does not kill broadleaf weeds. That had so just I, begun to germinate and yes. um, pop, basically. So you, if you had gone and sprayed glyphosate at this time of the year, you would have killed the native seed bank, or set, you know, yes, you would have would eliminated have a part, yeah, por portion yeah. of that native seed bank, which we didn't want to do. Right, and then it would have taken a whole other year for those forbs to grow back, or I would have had to disc or something to get more vegetation growing. So I had to be very specific, so even my technique changed. Whereas another year, if I would have burned two two or three weeks earlier, I could have just sprayed glyphosate. Right, right. So, But once I got rid of the fescue, which however you need to do it, and some people will, will spray it in the fall because that's when it's bringing it into root, its root system, and and it kill, gets a better kill and then burns it in spring. But I wasn't able to do that because I couldn't spray it because it was too dangerous to spray until right. I could see the ground. So I had to get rid of all the cover before I could do any spraying. So long story short, I burned, and then I sprayed, and then I did nothing and still have not done nothing. And it's the most beautiful right now, that, that field. In fact, it's going to be one of the places that when the QDMA event happens here in three or four weeks, the stewardship two class, that's one of the places we're going to stop to look at mm -hmm. old field habitat was that burn from, from 2007 or 18. And it's just a beautiful old field. It's got every kind of forb you can think of. There's very little fescue in it. It's four or five feet tall and, and deer bedding in it all year long. It's just a fantastic field. So how, how many acres total of old field stand do you have right now across the farm? Now? Yeah. Oh gosh. That was just one field, but let's, uh, if, if, if we're look well, let me, let me break this down two ways. I'll talk about just the old pastures that are on the slopes, mm -hmm. but that does not count what we've done with the fields. The, the tillable The tillable acres. ground. Correct. Right. So there's probably now now we've got probably, I'm going to say 60 to 80 acres of old field managing habitat on slopes. Yep. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's that's in various stages of management. Sure. We're doing burn rotations and spray rotations and so forth. Right. Yes. And and here's here's one of the things that I want to make sure people realize is that this this transformation occurred basically within a growing season number 1 yes. but the transformation within your mindset and the value that this work brought also changed within a growing season yes. it does not take long if if you want to see big changes on a property address the open acres on a on on a property i'm not saying they, they need to be planted in crops or food plots because Todd right here is an example of, hey, that that only 
gained me so much. What I'm talking about is managing for old field stands because those are the areas that get the most sunlight. And if you have a great native seed bank there available to be, if you will, harnessed, then make it available for the sunlight to be able to produce or, or transfer energy into those plants and allow them to grow. In a growing season, you will see the property change, the way the wildlife work and utilize the property. Now, like you said, Todd, we had thatch-filled fescue slopes. Now it is filled with blackberry, an incredible amount of ragweed and goldenrod, the daisy flea bane, daisy flea bane everywhere. There, the structure itself is probably four, four and a half foot tall. Plenty of enough, and and very thick, like a dense, not too dense that yes. deer don't walk in it, um, bed in it. There, it is paths all through uh, it. I can paths that I can when, shine a light at night, and all you see is eyes. Yeah, <laughs> and so you've got eight, sixty to eighty acres that is both forage and cover. That was absolutely nothing prior to that, and Correct. this, this, these acres, you know, let's say, begin to be palatable in mid-April, and, and that's prior to most food plots ever being planted. Um, you have a jump on antler growing on sixty to eighty acres. What what time of the year this year? And I think it's applicable to tons and tons of people across the country. What time of the year were your pl- your crops planted um, on the property that remain until bull? Uh, sure, sure. My food plots, I got, fortunately, my summer plots, I got out a little earlier, which was about uh, late May. Okay. And and the farmer, he didn't get out his out till mid to late June. And here's what's interesting, Matt, and this is just will we'll shock you. And I'll tell a story that I told you yesterday here in a minute about that old ragweed field versus my soybeans. But and, and don't let me forget that. Yep. But my soybeans, and this is this is this is fact because I do camera surveys all the time. Plus I do a lot of observation. My soybeans did not get touched by the deer. Not even I did not see a single deer in my entire soybean field until late June. June. Mm-hmm. They had already been growing a month. They were already almost waist high before I even saw a deer in them because the deer were eating all the native vegetation. That had been, that was starting to grow mid April. Yes, I would see deer all in the old field habitats munching away, and my soybean field was sitting there with not a deer in it, not a browse, not one browse on it. Mm -hmm. Now, come mid, late June through July, they were pounding the soybeans because. The native vegetation gets a little more stemmy, gets more lignin in it, it gets a little more dry, and we've kind of been in a drought the last month, month and a half, and that's when they started hitting the soybeans was as that native vegetation started waning a bit. Now, sure. that's why it's important that you have it in various stages of growth because I have another old field, which we, which we talked about last night, and the one I saw those deer in, mm-hmm. it's in very early stages. It's not even knee high, and they're pounding it even today. Right. So, and we'll talk about that. But, but let me let me say this. There, I want to say two things about this this eye opener and this total light bulb. Okay, one has to do with a deer, and one has to do with uh, money and time. That first field I burned that we we talked about how I did it. 
here's all I had involved with time and money. I tilled around it. It was a 15-acre field. I, so I took my, my tiller and I tilled around it to make a really good fire break. Yep. That probably took me two to three hours total. Total. Okay. Because I, had, I mowed it and then I tilled it. Maybe four hours, but I would say two to three hours. The burn probably was an hour and a half at most. How many acres is this? This was 15. This okay. was a 15-acre field. This was my very first experience several years ago. And so it took a couple hours, and I, I did pay a couple guys to help me on that very first one I mentioned mm-hmm. that knew what they were doing. So I had a little cost there, but it was very minimal, and I had some herbicide. I probably spent less than $100 on herbicide, maybe $100. I don't, I don't know. I, I, clethodim's a little more expensive than glyphosate, so maybe it's $100. I don't, I don't remember exactly. Right. So, and that was it. I haven't touched it since not one time so i have probably less than four or five six total hours is in the, the entire project and i will probably won't do anything to it until i reburn it maybe in a couple of years it's you know when it starts getting stemmy we start getting some of the woody species back we want to keep it early succession not mid-succession so it probably needs to be burned maybe two years from now or so. We'll, yep. we'll judge that at that time. And then all I'll have to do is just re, redo my fire breaks. Yep. And I, I will have – and I won't have to spray the clefid in this time. Nope. So the only thing I'll have is some till, till – a little bit of tiller time and burn it. That's it. And that's An- it. Another four hours every yes. every three years. Yes. And it's off and running. You know, and if, that's it. If you did 15, 15 acres of – Let's just say that was plantable, and, and you decided to, to take right. the time and money to plant um, those 15 acres. You'd be doing that twice a year. Twice um, a year. And average, let's say, you know, you spent 300 bucks an acre um, a year on those 15 acres for fertilizer, for seed, for herbicide, everything. Let's just say it's 300 bucks an acre. That's 4,500 dollars a year yes. and way more time to manage those food plot areas than this old field. And the old field is growing beforehand and a lot longer, and you're not paying for seed. You're hardly managing it every other every other couple of years. And then it's also cover. Oh, yes. It, it, the cover is fantastic. There are deer in that everywhere, all season long, every part of the year. I was there in, year it is, in July. Winter, summer, spring. You yeah. can jump deer in there even in the middle of July or uh, in the middle absolutely. of winter. It's, it's we amazing. We had deer and, stand up. And that, that was the cool thing. They were probably 70 yards away. We were down mm-hmm. low, and they were mid-slope, and they stopped. They heard the buggy. So we we stopped. Excuse me. We stopped, but they just stood up watched us, looked at us, and sat right back down, 70 yards exactly. away. If that was in the timber, they would have run and hauled the um, the opposite direction. But there was that's so right. much cover, they just stopped, checked it. Oh, that's a buggy. Oh, I see a buggy. I'm going to squat right back down. That's Todd. He's just on his range yep. again. Ignore him. He's Very little you. disturbance. And here's another thing. You know what else you don't have to do? What you and I were talking about yesterday. Man, did I plant too early? Oh my gosh, it's not going to rain for a week. I don't know. There's, what no, it, there's not much risk. There's no weather dependency. Yep. There, you're not dependent on the weather because these things are adapted to hot summer weather, and then you have other species that are adapt to cool. And and I mentioned I was going to mention a deer. 
my favorite deer on the property who is still on the property and is just a giant this year, he lived the last two years in last year and a half in all of this old field habitat and he never left. Mm -hmm. I had pictures of him from the beginning of season until he shed antlers in four or five different cameras. That deer never left the property. Yep. He stayed there. He, he never left and he was a homebody. And if I'm convinced 100% that if I had not done this conversion, that that deer would not have had a place to live late in the hunting season and, and after those crops were harvested and he would have been killed or shot by someone else. Never. Yeah. It, you never, you never convinced. know, but it, it's, it's a definite, um, a, a definite eye opener for the fact that, okay, I didn't have cover here. Now I have cover here and that's where the deer are. That's where they're spending a large majority of the time. Home range has shrunk because of the quality of cover and you know that deer that deer that you're talking about occupies now a, a very small portion of the actual property in the very center of it but you know to, to, you, if you want to hunt that deer you know exactly where to go like you know he's going to be in this 40 acre block pretty much and that's where you're going to harvest them that's where you had your observations your sightings and that's pretty much for the whole year and i think that what we're what we see is you know on on farms that have really good high quality um, cover and forage, we see the need for more ranging. Or, or every deer is, uh, is is an individual. We totally know that. But we see home range or core area, excuse me, shrink down. And you know where they're spending the majority of the time, there's just not a need for them to travel greater, farther distances because those resources are all so the composition of them is, is, is so much tighter because the overall quality of the habitat is so great. They don't, they just don't need to travel. And it's a kind of a good transition Todd into the, the next discussion of something that you're seeing right now um, on the North side of the farm where there's mm -hmm. no crops planted this year yes, because, amazing. <laughs> because the farmer couldn't get there because of how wet yeah. it was. So right, right now you have, you mentioned earlier, let's say early successional weeds and um, growth coming back that's about knee high but mm -hmm. the the crops that were planted are in the center and southern portion of the property however again we're talking about the shrinking down the need to travel for forage and from cover is so much smaller because if we if we understand true quality habitat and true quality forage what you're seeing on the north side right now is Again, knee high. That's not cover. We understand that, but it is incredible forage right now. You you saw twenty seven, almost thirty deer yeah, in that the other night. It's amazing. This is this is an amazing story, and and this is if a light bulb hasn't come on yet, then this ought to be like the bright light shining at you. This is the LED glaring. This is the LED. Okay, this is one of those tactical flashlights that hits you and you blind <laughs> yeah. you for three weeks. With the strobe function on. That's right. This is by sheer accident. This was by sheer accident, and it is just remarkable. Uh, the farmer, it was very, very wet in all around the country this spring and even last year, but in, in Ohio, it was just terrible. And so the farmer had actually sprayed this one field. It's about a 20-acre field getting ready to plant soybeans. Or I can't remember if he's going to plant corn or soybeans, but that's irrelevant. 
And so he had sprayed the vegetation in, in like mid-April to early May. So it was completely dead. Mm-hmm. And whereas whereas my old fields – now, we didn't even talk, Matt, about the old fields I did out in the tillable ground, which right. that's that costs no money and time mm-hmm. and no fire. And So let's make sure we get to that for, as well. But but this area that I'm talking about right now was about 30 acres that – that had not had any growing, did not have the beginning of the growing season, and it was literally dead the beginning of May. Mm-hmm. Nothing. It was sprayed. Unfortunately, he didn't get to plant because it just never got it never got dry enough. He couldn't get his equipment in there without rutting up the place, and his beans would have just rotted or, or corn or what have you. So this has turned into a 30-acre field. Now, remember, this has been planted for three years so the fescue's been dead for it's been sprayed for three years by the farmer mm-hmm. so it's been there's no fescue in this entire 30 acres it has turned into a mecca of ragweed and briars and brambles and daisy fleabane and pokeweed and everything you can think of a lot of annual and, species oh it's pretty much all annual species there's an occasional grass here or there but it's generally all forbs and it's it's not even knee high because remember it didn't start growing till after may because the herbicide he uses has a little bit of residual effect and so it didn't even start growing till probably late may early june Mm -hmm. so it whereas whereas these old fields were probably already knee high or almost waist high by june this field was a desert with nothing growing the beginning of june so now all that those forbs are less than knee high. It is the most fantastic food plot I have ever seen. Right. I took I took Justin out, one of your client Ryan Kimball's uh, mm-hmm. cousin who lives on his farm, the other day, and we looked at the browse on the ragweed alone. Every single ragweed in the entire thirty acres had browse all over it, and because it was being browsed. All these fresh new shoots were popping up. As it stayed if you very vegetative. Very yeah. vegetative. It did. It wasn't this tall. Now in my old fields, I have tall ragweed, four and five feet tall now. Right. And and it's not being browsed on. But this field, well, I, w- I was out the other night. I have a, a rock source side by side that has this big bar light across the top that lights up the whole county. Mm-hmm. I drove out in my soybean field, which is four feet tall soybeans that are fantastic. And I think I saw two, three, four, maybe five deer. Now, there may have been more out in there because it's very, very tall. And they'll bed in it and eat it as well. So, But I saw four or five. I drove out to the north side of the farm and drove into this old field and counted 27 deer. Mm. There were more deer in this 30-acre ragweed. Accident. Pokeweed, daisy, you know. Ford field that was an accident than there were in my soybean field. Yeah. That tells everything. Yep. And I went back, came back and I didn't tell you this, came back an hour later and there was 20 or 30 out there again. Mm. Mm. And they're there every single evening. And that I had heard, um, you all say, and then people like Craig Harper and others that are really good at this say that you should be able to sustain a deer herd on native vegetation. Food plots should only be a supplement or a hunting tool. If you're using food plots to feed your deer because they need the food, you have a major problem. Yep. Well, I am 100% convinced now 
that I could maintain except for maybe deep winter, which is could be your timber stand improvements, which that's not what this podcast is about. Yep. But I'm 100% convinced I could feed my entire deer herd, which is a lot of deer, yeah, the, without ever planting a food plot, without ever planting a food plot through from April through probably December or January mm-hmm. on just old field habitat. Now, I know the fall would be a little bit difficult because that stuff doesn't grow in the fall. Um, and that's, that, that's why I think the food plots are really important for more of the fall and the winter. But spring and summer, you don't need a food plot. Now, we still plant them, and we have reasons to do them. We need to plant summer crops for uh, biomass and to keep weed pressure down in the food plots and all that. That's a totally different subject. But strictly from a habitat and nutritional perspective, you can feed your entire deer herd from May through, let's say, October, in my opinion, on old field habitat. 100 percent sure sure of it yeah and yeah managing and and using different techniques you know within those old fields of course yeah you can keep things definitely growing and and vegetative um and and just provide so much opportunity forage and cover at low cost low inputs and that's what that's what we want you know time again is always limited resources um tend to be limited and we want to make the biggest impact. We want to make the biggest bang for the buck. We've got to rely on what's already there and what just needs to be manipulated and shaped a little differently. And that most likely for, for many instances first requires a mindset change. Todd, you've gone through that. Um, you know, hopefully people are understanding that's, that's kind of what we want to preach. We want to preach a different mindset, um, that will shift our focus that makes farms more productive, more respective of the land, the the dynamics of how um, ecology works with different habitat types, wildlife, everything. But you have to have a mindset, um, have a mindset right. that is willing to accept those terms and willing to accept that maybe my, my um, initial thoughts are wrong and I need to be open to doing this if you're willing and wanting to save a buck and make a um make a big impact on the property well so, and and do you mind if i talk just a minute about the old fields the the actual tillable ground because those are much easier and take you didn't have i didn't have to burn them and i think sure, if someone's sure. intimidated by burning there is another way to do this yeah um i as as you know i took about 60 acres out of production this past year and turned them into old fields mm-hmm. now remember these have been cropped for several years so the fescue was gone so if you have fescue you got to get rid of the fescue but I literally did absolutely nothing other than get rid of the fescue, which the farmer did for me in this particular case. But if you don't have a farmer, just spray it mainly in the fall or whatever. And you can, you can go over all those techniques, but just get rid of the fescue or the, what it, or if it's, if you're down South, it can be brome. It could be uh, bahia, bahia grass. Brome know, is, whatever. Yeah. More North. Yeah. Okay. So what, whatever invasive or cool season grass you have, you know, just get rid of it. And I literally did nothing other than that. And I have 60 acres of the most wonderful cover and food that you would ever find. Mm-hmm. And, and that's in those 140 acres of tillable ground. And, I, and my plan, as I told you yesterday, is I'd like to have the entire 140 acres in nothing but old field. Right. And, and it would take no money. I don't have to right. do anything. Now, yes, there's some there's some Johnson grass in it and there's some 
some things that I don't want, uh, Mare's Tale, but of course they'll browse Mare's Tale a little For bit. Sure. But there are some things that if I want to fight it, I will, but I, I'm not even doing that. I'm just letting it go. And yeah, there's some things here or there, but, but it's 80 to 90% good stuff. Correct, correct. And even some native grasses. And I had... And, I had... And time, time changes things. That's why we call it early succession. If you allow succession and time to take place, those species, the composition of what you see first pop is going to change over the course of a couple years. Um, yes. That's just the natural progression of, of nature. We, 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 to- right. we see that across the country. <clears throat> Anywhere there's disturbances, composition of species changes over time. And one thing to note is this is, um, I guess, the response, Todd, that you're seeing in these areas, you know, that have been cropped prior uh, mm-hmm. you're you're pretty fortunate, truthfully, from knowing that there's been multiple years of herbicide applications on here. Um, you know, Not everybody is going to have the same response that Todd's talking about in their tillable acres if you just let them go. Sometimes you do need to introduce and bring native species well, back sure. and do native planting. Sure. But right now, what you saw by, by testing an area and letting it go for a year, you said, wow, actually, that's not bad. That's pretty good. Exactly. And slowly reduce the amount of acres that were being cropped knowing the response you tested it you test drove the car basically and you yes. knew what was going to happen what's going to occur if you just begin to um, right. allow less acres to be planted every single year so if right. you're a person in that same situation test drive it see what comes back That's see right. if it's the the beneficial forage and cover that we're talking about that was my that was my plan let it go for a year see what grew if i liked what grew keep it if i didn't like what grew then I was going to get pure air natives in there or someone in mm-hmm. there to, to put stuff I want to plant. Now, right. there are still some areas that that probably need some work. But again, the cost and the time and the energy is way less yes. than even if I do introduce those other species. It's just amazing. And 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 here's what I'm noticing now. And it's it's it's. It's not hunting season yet, but here's what I'm noticing. I've been glassing these fields over the past month and a half, and I'm seeing some huge deer, which you've seen them on camera, Mm -hmm. and they're not walking out of the woods to get into my fields to eat. They're walking out of this old field habitat. They're bedded down in this stuff even in the summertime. And that come winter when when it's 20 degrees out or 15 degrees out, and it's windy out, they're going to be bedded in this stuff to get out of the wind. And that radiant heat from the sun is going to come down and, and it's just going to be a Mecca of bedding. And I even, I even drilled some switchgrass in one area a year, about a year ago, which is doing fantastic. And, um, and now I'm saying, I wish I would have just not spent that money and, and because my old field is just as good as my switchgrass. Yep. I didn't need to spend that money. I'm not mm-hmm. against switchgrass. I'm just saying I could have just not even planted the switchgrass. Yep. Totally. Although switchgrass has its place. And, and just like and every, just like everything. And, yeah. Yep. Yeah. But I could have had just as good a response and, and actually had food. Now, fortunately I, I, I digress a bit. The, where I planted the switchgrass, I really didn't want it to be forbs because it was in near the border, and I'd really only want them bedding there. I'd really don't want them feeding there. So probably it was a good idea in that particular spot to plant switchgrass. 
because I don't want the Ford component and, and they don't even switch grass, they just bed in it. So, uh, but my point is, is that if you're considering spending a lot of time and money planting things, you might just wait a year and see what response. Yeah, for sure. And if you have good response, great. If not, then then the worst thing happened is you've at least killed your invasives. But you know how to and, move forward. You know how to move forward yes. the most efficient manner if you if you just honestly sit back and just watch and observe. And that's that's again another mindset change of sometimes guys it just makes sense to let nature do its thing, watch what happens. That's where it's a very important to know your plants. Um, whether you're using the iNaturalist app or you're just studying it from a book or you're just aware of it, know what's coming back, know what how deer are going to respond to it, if it's going to be forage, if it's going to be cover, um, but just letting nature take its course, embracing the fact that sometimes the most beneficial thing we can do is be patient and wait and let nature run its course. I'm totally okay with that. I think that if we just ad- adopt that mindset again and say, I'm okay with not having to do anything and knowing what's going to come back and knowing it's going to be beneficial, that's the best answer. That's that's okay. And I, my mindset, Matt, has changed from the way to hold big deer and have big deer on your property went from being three or four years ago, have a bunch of food, mm-hmm. to now it's completely have a bunch of cover. Yep. If, if you want to keep big deer, have cover. And then if you have cover that equals food – you can grow them big too and not For just sure. hold them. So you're going to grow them big and then you're going to hold them during the hunting season. And, and I'm convinced that, that we will be able to hold multiple more mature bucks on our property this year than we ever have before. Because as far as the deer are concerned, there's probably 60 to 80 more acres of cover than there were last year and the year before not counting what's already there. Mm-hmm. And and that, to me, is the key. That, yep. That's the key to holding and growing big deer is, is food that equals cover. And then let me mention one other thing, predators. You know, I've had this discussion many times. If, if you have open fields and open woods and you have a big coyote or raccoon or whatever population, then, yeah, they're going to devastate your deer herd. But if you have all this cover and all this, this these areas where deer, deer feel safe and for fawning and things like that, you don't have a coyote problem because the coyotes can't wreak havoc. And I'm just using coyotes as an example. It could be hawks. It could be other things. But your predators are not going to be able to devastate your wildlife population. Uh, I have lots of coyotes on my farm, and I don't ever kill a coyote because as far as I'm concerned, they have to make a living too. And so, and they're part of nature. They were here long before I was. I'm seeing more rabbits than I've ever seen on my farm. Every day, every time I, I, I go around my property, there's rabbits everywhere. There's wildlife everywhere, every kind of small game, large game. And so if you, have, if you think you have a coyote problem, increase your quality cover, and my guess is your coyote problem will go away. You, we don't need to shoot a bunch of coyotes. Correct, correct. Right. We just need to have better cover. We need to give the, the prey species, the deer, the turkey, a better chance. 100%. 100%. Yeah. So no, I, I, I'm I sorry you hit my soapbox. No, no, no. I think you hit the soapbox. nail on the head. It's just, but it's just it's further evidence um, and emphasis on the, the, the best practice in a lot of areas is early succession, old field yes. habitat. 
And so I think that's a perfect uh, wrap-up to, truthfully, your mindset change, the way you look at your farm, the way, you, the way you're choosing to manage and move forward with it, um, you know, knowing that, my gosh, there, the impact is, is, so, is so big and, and the work and the money is so little. Why would you not do it? Why would you turn your, you know, eye to something different when you can have such a, such a benefit? Right. So I'm seeing a much bigger impact on my farm in the last year and a half by spending a lot less money yeah, than yeah. I ever did by spending all my time planting food plots. Again, well, I'm not against food plots. I'm just saying if 90% of my effort or 80% of my effort was on this stuff and 20% on food plots, I would have been way better off three years ago. Right, right. And so I think, you know, that, again, that's why we love it. Um, and, you know, not only do we want to help improve the habitat, but, um, you know, I think sometimes if you look at a farm, especially a recreational farm, you have to, you have to be mindful of you know, the business end of things. And so if we can save that time and money for, for a landowner, that's what we want to do because truthfully that's going to make, uh, you know, the wife at home happier and the, the land in this respect right here, obviously much more, um, better for reaching your goal. So Todd, thank you so much for, for coming awesome. on. Um, awesome. I think it's, I think it's definitely great to hear your perspective on Oldfield and managing the land differently and how you went through a mindset change. Thank you for being open to, to sharing that. Um, but I think it's definitely helpful for people to, to hear that, you know, if you did it, I can do it. And I think that's a, a huge, a huge win for, for everyone else moving forward. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I really appreciate it. And that's the thing I like about you and Adam and Landon Legacy is 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 you all focus on on so much on these types of things and not and, and food plots. Sure. But, but this you can you can transform an entire farm without spending thousands and thousands of dollars and have great, great habitat and 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 so forth. And Definitely. I'm really excited about about this phase and and i'm really excited about my farm and i think others can can be just as excited so Without thank you very much for having me hey absolutely todd appreciate it um we will catch up later but guys thank you so much for listening hope you enjoyed this week's podcast with todd watts talking all about old field management mindset changing and you know how that can help you on your property um, be sure to follow us on social media subscribe to youtube we got lots of videos dropping um, all things food plots all things native habitat um, property management and soon to be hunting because hunting season is just around the corner which we're looking forward to um, but guys appreciate it thank you again so much and we'll catch you next week yeah. <laughs>